The Arabian Nights. The story of the first calendar, son of a king. In order, madam, to explain how I came to lose my right eye and to wear the dress of a calendar, you must first know that I am the son of a king. My father's only brother reigned over the neighbouring country and had two children, a daughter and a son, who were of the same age as myself. As I grew up and was allowed more liberty, I went every year to pay a visit to my uncle's court and usually stayed there about two months. In this way, my cousin and I became very intimate and were much attached to each other. The very last time I saw him, he seemed more delighted to see me than ever and gave a great feast in my honour. When we had finished eating, he said to me, My cousin, you would never guess what I have been doing since your last visit to us. Directly after your departure, I set a number of men to work on a building after my own design. It is now completed and ready to be lived in. I should like to show it to you, but you must first swear two things, to be faithful to me and to keep my secret. Of course, I did not dream of refusing him anything he asked and gave the promise without the least hesitation. He then bade me wait an instant and vanished, returning in a few moments with a richly dressed lady of great beauty. But as he did not tell me her name, I thought it was better not to inquire. We all three sat down to table and amused ourselves with talking of all sorts of indifferent things and with drinking each other's health. Suddenly, the prince said to me, Cousin, we have no time to lose. Be so kind as to conduct this lady to a certain spot where you will find a dome-like tomb, newly built. You cannot mistake it. Go in, both of you, and wait till I come. I shall not be long. As I had promised, I prepared to do as I was told, and giving my hand to the lady, I escorted her, by the light of the moon, to the place of which the prince had spoken. We had barely reached it when he joined us himself, carrying a small vessel of water, a pickaxe, and a little bag containing plaster. With the pickaxe, he at once began to destroy the empty sepulchre in the middle of the tomb. One by one, he took the stones and piled them up in a corner. When he had knocked down the whole sepulchre, he proceeded to dig at the earth, and beneath where the sepulchre had been, I saw a trap door. He raised the door, and I caught sight of the top of a spiral staircase. Then he said, turning to the lady, Madam, this is the way that will lead you down to the spot which I told you of. The lady did not answer, but silently descended the staircase, the prince following her. At the top, however, he looked at me. My cousin, he exclaimed, to do not know how to thank you for your kindness. Farewell. What do you mean, I cried. I don't understand. No matter, he replied. Go back by the path that you came. He would say no more, and greatly puzzled, I returned to my room in the palace and went to bed. When I woke and considered my adventure, I thought that I must have been dreaming and sent a servant to ask if the prince was dressed and could see me. But on hearing that he had not slept at home, I was much alarmed and hastened to the cemetery, where, unluckily, the tombs were all so alike that I could not discover which was the one I was in search of, though I spent four days in looking for it. You must know that all this time, the king, my uncle, was absent on a hunting expedition, and as no one knew when he would be back, I at last decided to return home, leaving the ministers to make my excuses. I longed to tell them what had become of the prince, about whose fate they felt the most dreadful anxiety, but the oath I had sworn kept me silent. On my arrival at my father's capital, 
I was astonished to find a large detachment of guards drawn up before the gate of the palace. They surrounded me directly I entered. I asked the officers in command the reason of this strange behaviour and was horrified to learn that the army had mutinied and put to death the king, my father, and had placed the Grand Vizier on the throne. Further, that by his orders I was placed under arrest. Now this rebel vizier had hated me from my boyhood, because once, when shooting at a bird with a bow, I had shot out his eye by accident. Of course, I not only sent a servant at once to offer him my regrets and apologies, but I made them in person. It was all of no use. He cherished an undying hatred towards me and lost no occasion of showing it. Having once got me in his power, I felt he could show no mercy, and I was right. Mad with triumph and fury, he came to me in my prison and tore out my right eye. That is how I lost it. My persecutor, however, did not stop here. He shut me up in a large case and ordered his executioner to carry me into a desert place, to cut off my head and then to abandon my body to the birds of prey. The case, with me inside it, was accordingly placed on a horse, and the executioner, accompanied by another man, rode into the country until they found a spot suitable for the purpose. But their hearts were not so hard as they seemed, and my tears and prayers made them waver. Forsake the kingdom instantly, said the executioner at last, and take care never to come back for you will not only lose your head, but make us lose ours. I thanked him gratefully and tried to console myself for the loss of my eye by thinking of the other misfortunes I had escaped. After all I had gone through and my fear of being recognised by some enemy, I could only travel very slowly and cautiously, generally resting in some out-of-the-way place by day and walking as far as I was able by night. But at length I arrived in the kingdom of my uncle, of whose protection I was sure. I found him in great trouble about the disappearance of his son, who had, he said, vanished without leaving a trace. But his own grief did not prevent him sharing mine. We mingled our tears, for the loss of one was the loss of the other, and then I made up my mind that it was my duty to break the solemn oath I had sworn to the prince. I therefore lost no time in telling my uncle everything I knew, and I observed that even before I had ended, his sorrow appeared to be lightened a little. My dear nephew, he said, your story gives me some hope. I was aware that my son was building a tomb, and I think I can find the spot. But, as he wished to keep the matter secret, let us go alone and seek the place ourselves. He then bade me disguise myself, and we both slipped out of a garden door, which opened onto the cemetery. It did not take long for us to arrive at the scene of the prince's disappearance, or to discover the tomb I had sought so vainly before. We entered it and found the trap door which led to the staircase, but we had great difficulty in raising it because the prince had fastened it down underneath with the plaster he had brought with him. My uncle went first and I followed him. When we reached the bottom of the stairs, we stepped into a sort of ante-room filled with such a dense smoke that it was hardly possible to see anything. However, we passed through the smoke into a large chamber which at first seemed quite empty. The room was brilliantly lighted, and in another moment we perceived a sort of platform at one end, on which were the bodies of the prince and a lady, both half burned, as if they had been dragged out of a fire before it had quite consumed them. This horrible sight turned me faint, but to my surprise my uncle did not show so much surprise as anger. I knew, he said, 
that my son was tenderly attached to this lady, whom it was impossible he should ever marry. I tried to turn his thoughts and presented to him the most beautiful princesses, but he cared for none of them and, as you see, they have now been united by a horrible death in an underground tomb. But as he spoke, his anger melted into tears and again I wept with him. When he recovered himself, he drew me to him. My dear nephew, he said, embracing me, you have come to me to take his place, and I will do my best to forget that I ever had a son who could act in so wicked a manner. Then he turned and went up the stairs. We reached the palace without anyone having noticed our absence, when, shortly after, a clashing of drums and cymbals and the blare of trumpets burst upon our astonished ears. At the same time, a thick cloud of dust on the horizon told of the approach of a great army. My heart sank when I perceived that the commander was the vizier who had dethroned my father and was come to seize the kingdom of my uncle. The capital was utterly unprepared to stand a siege and seeing that resistance was useless, at once opened its gates. My uncle fought hard for his life, but was soon overpowered and when he fell, I managed to escape through a secret passage and took refuge with an officer whom I knew I could trust. Persecuted by ill fortune and stricken with grief, there seemed to be only one means of safety left to me. I shaved my beard and my eyebrows and put on the dress of a calendar in which it was easy for me to travel without being known. I avoided the towns till I reached the kingdom of the famous and powerful Caliph Harun al-Rashid when I had no further reason to fear my enemies. It was my intention to come to Baghdad and to throw myself at the feet of His Highness, who would, I felt certain, be touched by my sad story and would grant me, besides, his help and protection. After a journey which lasted some months, I arrived at length at the gates of this city. It was sunset and I paused for a little to look about me and to decide which way to turn my steps. I was still debating on this subject when I was joined by this other calendar who stopped to greet me. You, like me, appear to be a stranger, I said. He replied that I was right, and before he could say more, the third calendar came up. He also was newly arrived in Baghdad, and being brothers in misfortune, we resolved to cast in our lots together, and to share whatever fate might have in store. By this time it had grown late, and we did not know where to spend the night. But our lucky star having guided us to this door, we took the liberty of knocking and of asking for shelter which was given to us at once with the best grace in the world. This, madam, is my story. I am satisfied, replied Zubaydah. You can go when you like. The calendar, however, begged leave to stay and to hear the histories of his two friends and of the three other persons of the company which he was allowed to do. The story of the second calendar, son of a king. Madame, said the young man, addressing Zubaydah, if you wish to know how I lost my right eye, I shall have to tell you the story of my whole life. I was scarcely more than a baby when the king, my father, finding me unusually quick and clever for my age, turned his thoughts to my education. I was taught first to read and write, and then to learn the Quran, which is the basis of our holy religion, and the better to understand it. I read with my tutors, the ablest commentators on its teaching and committed to memory all the traditions respecting the Prophet, which have been gathered from the mouth of those who were his friends. I also learnt history, 
and was instructed in poetry, versification, geography, chronology and in all the outdoor exercises in which every prince should excel. But what I liked best of all was writing Arabic characters and in this I soon surpassed my masters and gained a reputation in this branch of knowledge that reached as far as India itself. Now the Sultan of the Indies, curious to see a young prince with such strange tastes, sent an ambassador to my father, laden with rich presents and a warm invitation to visit his court. My father, who was deeply anxious to secure the friendship of so powerful a monarch and held besides that a little travel would greatly improve my manners and open my mind, accepted gladly and in a short time I had set out for India with the ambassador attended only by a small suite on account of the length of the journey and the badness of the roads. However, as was my duty, I took with me ten camels, laden with rich presents for the Sultan. We had been travelling for about a month, when one day we saw a cloud of dust moving swiftly towards us, and as soon as it came near, we found that the dust concealed a band of fifty robbers. Our men barely numbered half, and as we were also hampered by the camels, there was no use in fighting so we tried to overawe them by informing them who we were and whither we were going. The robbers, however, only laughed and declared that was none of their business and without more words attacked us brutally. I defended myself to the last, wounded though I was, but at length seeing that resistance was hopeless and that the ambassador and all our followers were made prisoners, I put spurs to my horse and rode away as fast as I could till the poor beast fell dead from a wound in his side. I managed to jump off without any injury and looked about to see if I was pursued. But for the moment I was safe, for as I imagined, the robbers were all engaged in quarrelling over their booty. I found myself in a country that was quite new to me and dared not return to the main road, lest I should again fall into the hands of the robbers. Luckily my wound was only a slight one, and after binding it up as well as I could, I walked on for the rest of the day till I reached a cave at the foot of a mountain where I passed the night in peace, making my supper off some fruits I had gathered on the way. I wandered about for a whole month without knowing where I was going, till at length I found myself on the outskirts of a beautiful city, watered by winding streams, which enjoyed an eternal spring. My delight at the prospect of mixing once more with human beings was somewhat damped at the thought of the miserable object I must seem. My face and hands had been burned nearly black, my clothes were all in rags, and my shoes were in such a state that I had been forced to abandon them altogether. I entered the town and stopped at a tailor's shop to inquire where I was. The man saw I was better than my condition and begged me to sit down, and in return I told him my whole story. The tailor listened with attention, but his reply, instead of giving me consolation, only increased my trouble. Beware, he said, of telling anyone what you have told me, for the prince who governs the kingdom is your father's greatest enemy, and he will be rejoiced to find you in his power. I thanked the tailor for his counsel, and said I would do whatever he advised. Then being very hungry, I gladly ate of the food he put before me, and accepted his offer of a lodging in his house. In a few days I had quite recovered from the hardships I had undergone, and then the tailor, knowing that it was the custom for the princes of our religion to learn a trade or profession, so as to provide for themselves in times of ill fortune, inquired if there was anything I could do for my living. I replied that I had been educated as a grammarian and a poet, but that my great gift was writing. All that is of no use here, said the tailor. Take my advice 
Put on a short coat, and as you seem hardy and strong, go into the woods and cut firewood, which you will sell in the streets. By this means you will earn your living, and be able to wait till better times come. The hatchet and the cord shall be my present. This counsel was very distasteful to me, but I thought I could not do otherwise than adopt it. So the next morning I set out with a company of poor woodcutters to whom the tailor had introduced me. Even on the first day I cut enough wood to sell for a tolerable sum, and very soon I became more expert, and had made enough money to repay the tailor all he had lent me. I had been a woodcutter for more than a year, when one day I wandered further into the forest than I had ever done before, and reached a delicious green glade where I began to cut wood. I was hacking at the root of a tree when I beheld an iron ring fastened to a trapdoor of the same metal. I soon cleared away the earth and pulling up the door, found a staircase which I hastily made up my mind to go down, carrying my hatchet with me by way of protection. When I reached the bottom, I discovered that I was in a huge palace, as brilliantly lighted as any palace above ground that I had ever seen, with a long gallery supported by pillars of jasper, ornamented with capitals of gold. Down this gallery a lady came to meet me, of such beauty that I forgot everything else, and thought only of her. To save her all the trouble possible, I hastened towards her and bowed low. Who are you? Who are you? she said. A man or a genius? A man, madam, I replied. I have nothing to do with genii. By what accident do you come here? she asked again with a sigh. I've been in this place now for five and twenty years, and you are the first man who has visited me. Emboldened by her beauty and gentleness, I ventured to reply, Before, madam, I answer your question, allow me to say how grateful I am for this meeting, which is not only a consolation to me in my own heavy sorrow, but may perhaps enable me to render your lot happier. And then I told her who I was, and how I had come there. Alas, prince, she said, with a deeper sigh than before, you have guessed rightly in supposing me an unwilling prisoner in this gorgeous place. I am the daughter of the King of the Ebony Isle, of whose fame you surely must have heard. At my father's desire I was married to a prince who was my own cousin, but on my very wedding day I was snatched up by a genius and brought here in a faint. For a long while I did nothing but weep, and would not suffer the genius to come near me. But time teaches us submission, and I have now got accustomed to his presence, and if clothes and jewels could content me, I have them in plenty. Every tenth day, for five and twenty years, I have received a visit from him, but in case I should need his help at any other time, I have only to touch a talisman that stands at the entrance of my chamber. It wants still five days to his next visit, and I hope that during that time you will do me the honour to be my guest. I was too much dazzled by her beauty to dream of refusing her offer, and accordingly the princess had me conducted to the bath, and a rich dress befitting my rank was provided for me. Then a feast of the most delicate dishes was served in a room hung with embroidered Indian fabrics. Next day, when we were at dinner, I could maintain my patience no longer, and implored the princess to break her bonds and return with me to the world which was lighted by the sun. What you ask is impossible, she answered, but stay here with me instead, and we can be happy, and all you will have to do is to betake yourself to the forest every tenth day, when I am expecting my master the genius. He is very jealous, as you know, and will not suffer a man to come near me. Princess, I replied, I see it is only fear of the genius that makes you act like this. 
For myself, I dread him so little that I mean to break his talisman in pieces. Awful though you think him, he shall feel the weight of my arm, and I herewith take a solemn vow to stamp out the whole race. The princess, who realised the consequences of such audacity, entreated me not to touch the talisman. If you do, it will be the ruin of both of us, said she. I know genii much better than you. But the wine I had drunk had confused my brain. I gave one kick to the talisman, and it fell into a thousand pieces. Hardly had my foot touched the talisman, when the air became as dark as night. A fearful noise was heard, and the palace shook to its very foundations. In an instant I was sobered, and understood what I had done. Princess, I cried, what is happening? Alas, she exclaimed, forgetting all her own terrors in anxiety for me. Fly, or you are lost. I followed her advice and dashed up the staircase, leaving my hatchet behind me, but I was too late. The palace opened, and the genius appeared, who, turning angrily to the princess, asked indignantly, What is the matter that you have sent for me like this? A pain in my heart, she replied hastily. Oblige me to seek the aid of this little bottle. Feeling faint, I slipped and fell against the talisman, which broke. That is really all. You are an impudent liar, cried the genius. How did this hatchet and those shoes get here? I never saw them before, she answered, and you came in such a hurry that you may have picked them up on the road without knowing it. To this the genius only replied by insults and blows. I could hear the shrieks and groans of the princess, and having by this time taken off my rich garments and put on those in which I had arrived the previous day, I lifted the trap, found myself once more in the forest, and returned to my friend the tailor, with a light load of wood and a heart full of shame and sorrow. The tailor, who had been uneasy at my long absence, was delighted to see me. But I kept silence about my adventure, and as soon as possible retired to my room to lament in secret over my folly. While I was thus indulging my grief, my host entered and said, There is an old man downstairs who has brought your hatchet and slippers, which he picked up on the road, and now restores to you, as he found out from one of your comrades where you lived. You had better come down and speak to him yourself. At this speech I changed colour, and my legs trembled under me. The tailor noticed my confusion, and was just going to inquire the reason when the door of the room opened, and the old man appeared, carrying with him my hatchet and shoes. I am a genius, he said, the son of the daughter of Eblis, prince of the genii. Is not this hatchet yours and these shoes? Without waiting for an answer, which indeed I could hardly have given him, so great was my fright. He seized hold of me and darted up into the air with the quickness of lightning, and then with equal swiftness dropped down towards the earth. When he touched the ground, he wrapped it with his foot. It opened and we found ourselves in the enchanted palace, in the presence of the beautiful princess of the Ebony Isle. But how different she looked from what she was when I had last seen her, for she was lying stretched on the ground, covered with blood, and weeping bitterly. Traitor! cried the genius. Is not this man your lover? She lifted up her eyes slowly and looked sadly at me. I never saw him before, she answered slowly. I do not know who he is. What? exclaimed the genius. You owe all your sufferings to him, and yet you dare to say he's a stranger to you. But if he really is a stranger to me, she replied, why should I tell a lie and cause his death? Very well, said the genius, drawing his sword. Take this and cut off his head. Alas, answered the princess, 
I am too weak even to hold the sabre, and supposing that I had the strength, why should I put an innocent man to death? You condemn yourself by your refusal, said the genius. Then turning to me, he added, And you, do you not know her? How should I? I replied, resolved to imitate the princess in her fidelity. How should I when I never saw her before? Cut her head off, then, if she is a stranger to you, and I shall believe you are speaking the truth and will set you at liberty. Certainly, I answered, taking the sabre in my hands and making a sign to the princess to fear nothing, as it was my own life that I was about to sacrifice, and not hers. But the look of gratitude she gave me shook my courage, and I flung the sabre to the earth. I should not deserve to live, I said to the genius. If I were such a coward as to slay a lady who is not only unknown to me, but who is at this moment half dead herself, do with me as you will. I am in your power, but I refuse to obey your cruel command. I see, said the genius, that you have both made up your minds to brave me, but I will give you a sample of what you may expect. So saying, with one sweep of his sabre, he cut off a hand of the princess, who was just able to lift the other to wave me an eternal farewell. Then I lost consciousness for several minutes. When I came to myself, I implored the genius to keep me no longer in this state of suspense, but to lose no time in putting an end to my sufferings. The genius, however, paid no attention to my prayers, but said sternly, That is the way in which a genius treats the woman who has betrayed him. If I chose, I could kill you also, but I will be merciful and content myself with changing you into a dog, an ass, a lion or a bird, whichever you prefer. I caught eagerly at these words as giving me a faint hope of softening his wrath. O oh, genius, I cried, as you wish to spare my life, be generous and spare it altogether. Grant my prayer and pardon my crime, as the best man in the whole world forgave his neighbour who was eaten up with envy of him. Contrary to my hopes, the genius seemed interested in my words and said he would like to hear the story of the two neighbours and as I think, madam, it may please you, I will tell it to you also.' 